0: So it's been said that the end can justify the means, meaning that if the means have questionable ethics, if a good end is achieved, then those questionable ethics are okay. In this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today, we'll see that the way or the means that God does something definitely ensures his purposes, God's way Ways are sometimes very painful to us. And we can't say that we always like his ways. They are not convenient to us or always comfortable or pleasurable. But they always bring about his goals. So, that brings us to the book of Joel. Joel chapter 1, very simple passage, that there was a major locust invasion on Israel. Now, the Israelites at that time thought, well, this is just a natural series of events. But Joel made it sure, made it clear that everyone understood that this was not just a natural phenomenon, that this was God's discipline of the nation. And it had a spiritual reason behind it, not a natural reason. The answer, too, was spiritual to this devastation. He warned Israel that there could be another disaster that's just around the corner. Except this one would be much worse. It would be larger in scope. He said that the solution to this big problem is not natural, it's supernatural. It's a spiritual response. In fact, in Joel chapter 1, verse 14, he told them to fast, he told them to assemble, he told them to listen to their leaders, and then to cry out to God. You need to get closer to God, you need to have a humble heart toward Him. And that's the solution to this discipline that God had allowed Israel to experience. Then in Joel chapter 2, verses 1-11, through 11, he described this massive army that would come from the north. That if Israel didn't repent, God would discipline them again. He'd do something to get their attention. If they did not repent, they would experience an even higher level of discipline. That God would redirect them and repurpose them. He would say, okay, you need to change your ways. You need to repent. Change your ways so that way you won't experience more discipline. You see, for Israel, it wasn't punishment, it was discipline. Because remember, discipline is done for the benefit of the perpetrator. God disciplines his children. He doesn't punish them. Why? Well, because Jesus received all of our due punishment already. But God allows things to happen. And some of that's part of the reason why sometimes we experience trials and speed bumps and roadblocks. Because God's trying to get our attention. He's disciplining us. He's redirecting our course. So in Joel chapter 2, he described this army and what it would do to Israel if they stayed on the same course of rebellion and disregard for God and what he wanted from them. But then in the middle of Joel chapter 2, God promised to bless his people if they repented. If they turned from their wicked ways, he would bless them. They were already his children, but God wanted to bless them. He wanted good things to happen to them. But they had wicked ways, and so therefore God would allow them to experience discipline. In Second Chronicles 7.14, a passage that we're probably familiar with, and oftentimes it's used for America, it's not really technically a promise that was made to America. It might be a general principle, but it was definitely a promise made to the nation of Israel, I'll tell you that. In 2 Corinthians 7.14, it says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive them their sins and will heal their land. So it's a promise that God gave to Israel. And that's a very similar promise that God made to Israel in Joel chapter 2. So their discipline that was just around the corner, which was most likely a massive invasion from the empire of Assyria, would be canceled out and their blessings would be restored. And even what the locust had taken away from them would be restored if they would change their mind about their direction, if they would change their beliefs and they would be humble toward God. That's all God wanted. He wanted a change of heart. He wanted a change of belief. So now that brings us to the last part of chapter 2 of Joel. And of course, in our English Bibles, verses 28 through 32 are kind of at the end of chapter 2. But if you have a Hebrew Bible, and I don't know if anybody has a Hebrew Bible with them today, but Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32 would actually be the third chapter of Joel. That's right. In the Hebrew Bible, Joel has four chapters. And its third chapter is very short. It's only six verses. But it's verses 28 through 20, 32. And so let's look at what those verses say to us. Just starting in verse 28 of Joel chapter 2, it says, And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, other Old Testament prophets have promised the Holy Spirit and from our perspective, especially those of us who have placed our faith alone in Christ alone already, one of the first things we discover that we learn is that one of the things that happens the moment that you place your faith in Christ is that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, comes and indwells you. So for us, oh well, this is really nothing unusual about that. But in the Old Testament, that's not the way it worked. The Holy Spirit would come on certain people for certain purposes. During the Old Testament era, the Holy Spirit was given only to special people who had special jobs to do, like Moses and the prophets, the judges. David, in Psalm 51, after his sin and his confession to God regarding his sin with Bathsheba, said, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, O Lord. Meaning, the Holy Spirit was not given as a permanent thing, it was given conditionally, so the Holy Spirit potentially could be removed from that person. But then everything switched, everything changed. A new paradigm was entered in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon believers permanently for the first time in human history. That was the birthday of the church. The promise here in Joel chapter 2, God gave Joel, he declared, that the Spirit would come upon all flesh, which includes men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile too. In the Old Testament, it would only be given to Jews for a certain purpose. Jewish leaders, Hebrew men and women who were the judges, the kings, would receive the Spirit for a period of time to be able to accomplish Certain purposes, and as I mentioned, it could be removed if that person sinned. But here in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, is the partial fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. It would come upon not just Hebrew men and women, but it would even come upon the goyim. And female goyim, which are the shikses, if you know anything about Hebrew or Yiddish, you know. It would be available to everybody. What? The Holy Spirit would come upon us permanently? Upon all true believers? And do you mean that even non-Jews, Gentile men and women could receive the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God? And that's what Joel was prophesying here. What is he referring to? Well, if um you could turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, I want to read about this amazing event that took place that changed the world because this is the birthday of the ecclesia, or the church, the called out ones of God. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? And then a list of foreign places is given where all these Jewish participants came from originally. And they all wound up in Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost. Jesus had just ascended. And now all these people were gathered together. They all came together in one place, and this amazing supernatural phenomenon took place. We pick it up in the middle of verse 11. It says, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. All these things. Are, what kind of crazy place is this? People are speaking in all different kinds of languages, but then they're able to understand those languages. They're, at least they understand it's spoken in their own language. So the miracle was in the interpretation and the understanding of what was being preached and what was being said. So what was what was taking place here? Well, then Peter, Peter, who was kind of always a little bit sanguine and a little bit emotional, you could say. Of all people, Peter is the one who's the voice of reason. He's the one who's going to explain what's taking place here. Well, the Holy Spirit had just come upon him too. And so now, even in that short period of time, he was becoming more mature, a little bit more stable. He was always the one who was the least stable, to put it lightly with the disciples. But Peter says this, he says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. Hey, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Of course, that doesn't stop some people, right? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he goes and just quotes the passage of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And so what does this mean? Does he mean that this is all being fulfilled right then and there? And so just to cut to the chase, to get to the bottom line, I believe that it's a partial fulfillment of what Joel had prophesied 800 years before was taking place there in Jerusalem in roughly A.D. 33. Verses 28 and 29, I believe, were a, was a fulfillment that the Holy Spirit came upon believers for the first time. Peter defends against accusation, accusations that believers in the day of Pentecost were speaking in other tongues and were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is most likely a partial fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Because Israel, think about this, Israel in Joel chapter 2 was in a similar condition as Israel was in Acts chapter 2, even though they're separated by 800 years. In Joel chapter 2, Israel was arrogant. Israel thought that they were independent, that they didn't really need God. They were doing all the rituals. They had the religion. But they didn't have the heart to really truly follow after God. So God allowed these things to take place to get their attention. I'm going to discipline you because I love you. Not because I hate you. It's because I love you. I'm a good father to you. I'm going to allow you to experience some consequences. The locusts would come. And then if you don't repent, I'm going to send the Assyrians to conquer you. And then we fast forward 800 years roughly in the future. In Acts chapter 2, what had Israel just done? They just killed their Messiah. They crucified Him. They judged Him. And they crucified and rejected Him. But then what does Peter do? Peter in Acts chapter 2, and this is just going to happen now, past verse 16. What does Peter do? Peter preaches one of the most phenomenal sermons in church history. In fact, it's the first sermon ever preached in church history. And what does He tell Israel to do? He tells them to repent, to change their minds about who Jesus is. And verses 28 and 29 in Joel chapter 2 are fulfilled. The church is born. And so God reaches out, not just to the Jews, but now for the first time, He officially reaches out to the Gentiles, the vast population of the Gentiles, and says... I'm going to take believing Jews and I'm going to take believing Gentiles and I'm going to put them in one body. <laughs> this this is the if if we have racial problems anywhere in the world this is really the ultimate perfect solution to racial problems because Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down because now there is an organism known as the Ecclesia, the church, made up of people groups, two groups in particular at the start, the Jews and the Gentiles, who despised and distrusted one another, but now they can call each other brother and sister in Christ. That's the way to change people's hearts, to introduce them to Jesus. And then they change. And I've seen this all over the world where tribes and groups who once distrusted and hated one another, now get together. And at first it's a little bit apprehensive, but then when they realize they have a common experience, they have a common Lord, they have a common destiny, they have a common baptism in Jesus. You're my brother and sister. You're not just my friend. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. And so that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. The church was born. The church came into existence. Not any particular denomination. Just the church. This body made up of true believers in Jesus Christ. So Israel in Joel chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 2 have a strong parallel. In both times, Israel was being disciplined. And in both times, Joel and Peter told Israel that they had another chance. They had another opportunity to repent. And I believe firmly that if Israel had repented in response to Peter's phenomenal sermon in Acts chapter 2, The rest of Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, would have been fulfilled. But we have to wait, because that's not what happened. So God would pour out His Spirit on servants, males and females and even Gentiles. He founded the church, Jews and Gentiles. And then we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, indwelling us. The Holy Spirit's ministry to believers is indispensable. The Holy Spirit's ministry to believers is varied and has great depth. What does He do for us? Let me just give you a few examples of what the Holy Spirit does inside of us at the moment of salvation, the moment that we transfer our trust from nothing else or from something else to Christ. This takes place. We are baptized, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. This is exactly what the people, those 17 individuals, were highlighting just a few minutes ago. They were showing you in a physical way what had already happened to them spiritually. They were kind of like putting on a little skit for you. They were showing, hey, just like Jesus died and was buried, and rose again, that happened to me too. Not physically, but spiritually. Literally spiritually. It's not an allegory, not a metaphor, not a simile. It is literal, not literal physical, but literal spiritual. And so I want to show you what happened to me. This is what happens to believers. It's not just becoming a Christian is not like, okay, now, at this point in time, I'm going to start being a nice person. No, that's not it. That's the perception i guess if i come become a christian then i just have to start acting nice you know i'm not going to be able to do that what happens is a massive transformation of our insides, of our spirits are born again. So we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. What does baptism mean here? Well, there are different baptisms in the Bible. There's the baptism, for example, of or I should say there are different baptisms in biblical times because there are no examples of this in Scripture, but we know from history that if a pagan wanted to become a Jew, he would be baptized. His identity would change. John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance. And so if John the Baptist baptized you, that means that you were changing your mind about your sin, that you recognized your sinfulness. And that was all preparation it was a softening up so that way enter scene left jesus the messiah would come who would take you from recognition of your sins to salvation by trust and faith in his substitutionary atonement and so we are baptized a change of identity in fact i told the baptismal candidates this that you know some of the people in the early church it was kind of a tradition that once they became believers, and then they came public with their faith through water baptism, that they would actually change their names, because their new identity was so real and actual to them, that it made sense that if I have a new identity, I really should change my name. And so that tradition kind of went by the wayside, but it's Not such a bad idea. So the Holy Spirit baptizes us. He changes our identity the moment we place our faith in Christ. Also, The Holy Spirit indwells us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So the second ministry of the Spirit at the moment of salvation is that He indwells you. First, He changes your identity. Secondly, He actually indwells and comes to reside inside of you. But then the great news is that all of this is made permanent because the third ministry of the Holy Spirit to brand new believers is that all of the work that God does, whatever member of the Trinity does it, the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, it's all made permanent. This is the basis as to why we can say it's called good news because if it could be reversed, it's just okay news. (laughs) This is why it's goodness, is because this is not based upon your character or your performance. It's only based upon the character and the performance of Jesus, which is rock solid. And so therefore, he seals us. You were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. This is a seal. The Greek word means that it's not a seal That could be successfully disrupted or broken. No one can change it. Even our worst behavior, even our rejecting it can't, can't reverse our salvation. And so therefore, if it's true in the first place, it cannot be reversed. And so the Holy Spirit seals us. But then there's another ministry as well in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 that has its own category. So those first three are ministries of the Spirit that happen at the moment of salvation, but then there is something that's ongoing. And so Ephesians 5.18, among other places, it says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What's happening there? What's taking place? Well, this is, of course, written in the epistle or the letter to the Ephesian church. In Ephesus, there were a bunch of pagan temples, one of those pagan temples was toward the false god called Bacchus. I'll just read what it says here. Allusions to the orgies of Bacchus or to the festivals celebrated in honor of that pagan god. This is an allusion to those festivals. Bacchus was the god of wine. And during those festivals, men and women regarded it as an acceptable act of worship to become intoxicated and with wild songs and cries to run through the streets and the fields and the vineyards. So what basically Paul is telling the church at Ephesus is, okay, church at Ephesus, it's time to make a decision. What are you going to allow to influence you? Do you want to go the way of Bacchus? Or do you want to go the way of Yahweh, the Holy Spirit? Do you want... Which side of the fence do you want to fall on? What are you going to allow to influence you? What are you going to allow yourself to be dependent upon? And, of course, either one is an option. And sometimes believers even choose the wrong way. But the strong recommendation is that you allow yourself to be influenced by the Spirit. So what is the filling of the Holy Spirit? He's already indwelled. Meaning, we already have 100% of the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have all of us? That's the difference between indwelling and filling. It's a process. It's something that we really need to allow to take place every day. We have to, if you will, kind of set the table to be influenced and be dependent upon the third person of the Godhead. So it is voluntary, meaning that's why Paul gives the imperative. If it was if it was automatic. He wouldn't give the imperative and the command to allow yourself to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's something that believers have to intentionally cooperate with. So it's voluntary. It's, in a certain sense, passive. In other words, you don't fill yourself. You set the table so that way the Holy Spirit influences you. It is progressive. It is ongoing. It's not like indwelling or sealing Because that's one time. It is a command. It involves yieldedness. In other words, I will not presume that I know better than God does. It means I I don't want to grieve or quench the Spirit. I want to trust in Him and yield to Him. It's like, when was the last time you allowed Scripture to change your direction or to change the way you did something? I ask myself that question. I have it in my prayer journal. John, when was the last time you allowed Scripture to change your way about something? Where you said, I'm wrong and I'm headed in a way different direction than Scripture has told me to go. So I need to not change Scripture, although a lot of people are doing that these days, by the way, you know. But I need to change me. That's... A good example of what it means to be influenced, to be filled with the Spirit, to be humble toward Him. It evokes dependence. Paul in Galatians tells us to walk in the Spirit in a series of dependencies and admitting to God that we are not independent, we are dependent upon Him. It's a contrast of influence. Influence. uh, This man, A.J. Gordon, who was one of the founders of Gordon Seminary up in the northeast, he told of being out walking one day and looking across a field at a house. There beside the house was what looked like a man pumping furiously at one of those hand pumps. As Gordon watched, the man continued to pump at a tremendous rate. He seemed absolutely tireless, pumping on and on, up and down, without ever slowing in the slightest, much less stopping. Truly, it was quite a remarkable sight, and Gordon was compelled to walk closer toward it. And as he got closer, he could see that it was not a man at the pump, but it was a wooden figure painted to look like a man. The arm that was pumping so rapidly was hinged at the elbow, and the hand was wired at the pump handle. The water was, pump, was pouring forth, but not because the figure was pumping it. You see, it was an artesian well and the water was pumping the man. That's a good analogy. That's a good illustration to show what the Holy Spirit can and will and should do in our lives when we submit to Him. He's the one that fuels us. He's the one directs us. He is the one who leads us. And so there are so many other ministries of the Spirit as well. He convicts us of our sin. Um, He works within our conscience to be sensitized to our sin. And you know, the more we grow in Christ, the greater our sensitivity to our sin increases. And so he convicts us, he strengthens us. He gives us the power that we need as we confess our dependence upon him. Paul says, I will not boast in my strengths, but I will boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ remains upon me. I love the ministry of illumination too, because to be a Christian... I'm not going to look at anybody when I say this because you might think, oh, he's, he's saying I'm this way. But to be a Christian, you don't have to be very smart. <laughs> I'm going to look down again now. Okay? There are a lot of really bright Christians. I mean, we have the C.S. Lewis's and Josh McDowell's and so on, brilliant, brilliant men, brilliant philosophers and apologists and so on, down through the ages, many scientists. But you don't have to be that smart. In fact, there's an advantage to not being so full of yourself And so bright because maybe you're a little bit more humble. And then you're better established and prepped to pick up on what God is communicating to you. And so He illumines our hearts as far as what Scripture says, He comforts us. In fact, Jesus described the Holy Spirit as the comforter. I'm leaving. But I'm sending the comforter. He is the ultimate counselor. He's the gift giver. He gives us spiritual giftedness so that way not that we'll necessarily be happier but we will have a purpose in life as we employ that special gift to be able to build up other believers in the body of Christ. He is also the one that produces fruit in us with the Fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. And so he changes us from the inside out. There is a time period between verses 29 and 30. The time could have been compressed if Israel had repented in Acts chapter 2, but they did not. These phenomenon that says in verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved from Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. There will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. These wonders on earth and in the heavens would take place at a future point in time, even future to us. You just spent 18 months in the book of Revelation. Some of those phenomenon on earth and in the skies should sound familiar to you. They will take place in the great and dreadful, capital D, Day of the Lord. That begins most likely with the rapture of the church continuing through the seven-year tribulation period and even through the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Upon this planet. God's sovereignty will ensure the successful unfolding of His plan. God's sovereignty, because He is control, in control. He is all powerful, and He employs His all powerfulness through His sovereignty. That one way or another, whether or not His people cooperate or not, He will accomplish the tasks he will accomplish the mission that he has set out to do, and that is why he is ultimately trustworthy. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about him a lot, but we know he's there. We reject the idea that he's just an impersonal force, but he is a person. He is the third person of the Holy Trinity and we love him and worship him as well. He kind of seems to us, anyway, Lord, kind of seems to take the back seat sometime. He wants the Son to be glorified. And the Son seems to want you to be exalted. But we love all three of you. We love you. You are our God. And we worship you. We adore you. We love the fact that in all eternity, in the past and into the future. You love each other. Help us to have that same love toward each other. Thank you for your all-powerfulness. We love to watch you work. I pray that we will push aside the distractions and the fluff and really look to see how you are working in our midst. Thank you for these 17 individuals today which are Hardcore evidence of your work as you move toward us in confidence and in all love. We love you back. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. And I invite you to stand as we join our voices in response.